Hello and welcome to the Combat and Classics podcast. I'm Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas. And I'm Jeff Black at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. We've got Shiloh Brooks back to keep going on our Xenophon uh, study. We're going to be doing eight total episodes on this. And you are listening to episode two of Xenophon's The Education of Cyrus. Uh, Jeff is going to give a little overview of uh, what we talked about in book one. Um, and then Shiloh is going to start us off with an opening question. Yeah, thanks, Brian. So uh, book one was our first podcast, and that told about uh, Cyrus's uh, birth, who his parents were, his nature, and his education. And his education consisted mainly of the Persian education, but it was interrupted by uh, a few months or maybe a few years abroad in um, media, which is where his mother is from. The Medians have a very different uh, way of living than the Persians do. And so last time we talked a little bit about whether this is part of his education or his miseducation. Um, and uh, book one ended on a cliffhanger. And I promise that this episode was even more exciting uh, than the last episode because this one's going to end on two cliffhangers. Our first cliffhanger uh, is that uh, Cyrus is uh, leaving Persia literally and figuratively to go fight the Assyrians who are threatening to invade. Uh, by the end of the book that we're going to talk about today, he still will have not fought the Assyrians. So that cliffhanger stays hung. Uh, at the end of this book, he'll also be about to attack the Armenians for reasons that we might get to. So we're going to be on two uh, exciting cliffs by the end of today's podcast. Um, but what basically happens in this uh, book, book two, um, it's broken into four chapters. And we get something that I'm going to call a Persian revolution. Now, this revolution is a strange one. It happens outside of the bounds of Persia, and it happens chiefly in the Persian army. Um, basically, the chapters describe how Cyrus carries it out. Um, first, there's uh, an attempt to rearm uh, the Persian army. Uh, second, there's a chapter about uh, conversations over dinner that Xenophon tells us are both funny and serious. Uh, then there's a very interesting uh, debate with the army about what the principle of justice for the army should be. And then finally, there's a chapter where uh, Cyrus shows his mettle in dealing with two foreign powers, first uh, the Indians and then uh, the Armenians. So we're going to talk about these, uh, these four chapters of book two, and I'm going to turn it over to Shiloh to uh, give us a beginning here. Yeah, I have um, one kind of uh, macro observation and then a kind of micro question about this specific reading. One thing I would say before we begin is that um, the book is called The Education of Cyrus, but th there's no more talk about uh, Cyrus's education for the rest of the book. So we saw in chapter one, The Education of Cyrus, but now there's eight books left, so it should be over. Like, we're, why, are we, why are we still going? We know about The Education of Cyrus, so clearly, there's some, uh, our task, part of our task is to see how Cyrus's education or miseducation, um, the, the defects of his education or the um, boons of his education continue in the rest of the eight books. So I would just point that out to people. Why is the book called The Education of Cyrus when, when it seems like that education has been described and is now over? Um, uh, so that's the big observation just to keep in the back, in your back pocket. The, the, 
smaller uh, sort of question is, as Jeff has rightly noted, Cyrus is doing something to the Persians and the Persian army in particular. He's meddling with it. He's meddling with its psychology um, in a way that Xenophon doesn't explicitly bring out, but which um, began back in chapter five of book one, when Cyrus told the Persians that virtue was no longer its own reward, or at least it shouldn't be its own reward. It's virtue is not good for its own sake. It's good for the sake of the rewards that it brings. And so it says, why in, in book one, chapter five, why have we been doing all this if we don't get something from it? And then what happens today is that Cyrus begins, uh, he gets himself in a bit of a bind in book one because he realizes that he's vastly outnumbered and that he needs more um, uh, troops. And so the first thing that he does uh, to meddle with the Persian army is that he turns to the commoners um, and he says, look, we need you. Um, and we need you because um, this is going to be a battle with bows and spears. And the, the way ba distance battles works is that whoever's got more bullets wins. So if, we're, if they've got more bows and spears than we do, they've got more bullets than we do, they're going to win. What we have to do is uh, make it a melee battle. And so we need as many troops armed with swords and shields as possible to charge the archers such that they're, they can't reload. And perhaps then we can overcome superior numbers because we have a superior manner of combat. So that begins a whole snowball uh, effect where he now has to um, integrate uneducated and Xenophon explicitly, uh, someone raises this question to Cyrus. They say, Cyrus, how do you think these uneducated men will fare in our, um, in the army? And this gives rise to the serious and laughable uh, conversation. But Cyrus's task is now not only to bring these um, commoners into the army, also to make them fit, also to make them want to fight, and finally, and I think most importantly, to convince the Persian peers, the aristocrats, that this is all okay, that they should accept the commoners. And so I think a place to start is to try to unpack what is he doing psychologically um, uh, to these uh, people, and what also might he not, um, how do I say, what he, what might he not know that he's doing? In other words, I said this, um, or alluded to this last time, Cyrus is the hero of the book, but he's not beyond criticism. And it's, it's not impossible, for example, that Xenophon um, criticizes his hero or is trying to show something that's defective about his hero. And so today, I think we can begin to see in book two, Xenophon start to say that Cyrus may be doing things that he doesn't fully understand, especially when he begins to meddle with virtue, which of course Socrates, Xenophon's teacher, was an expert on, and Xenophon was an expert on. There's no reason Cyrus should be. It was not present in his education, so in the Socratic way. So these are the kinds of things I think that are fruitful to think about here. Yeah, that's, um, if, if I can kind of, take part of that uh, in, in your analysis you know you're talking a lot about um, or you mentioned virtue um, and there's this interesting line very early on um, I got it as line 11 in the ambler uh, and this is chapter one of book one and he says um, da, da, da. yeah Cyrus is said to have drawn them together and spoken as follows, yada, yada, yada. It says, but as it is, you have arrived with men whose bodies cannot be faulted and they will have arms similar to our own. So it is your work to wet their souls for it belongs to the ruler, not only to make himself good, but also 
but he must also take care that those he rules will be as good as possible. Is, do we think he's talking about virtue there or is we just talking about their combat capability? Yeah, that's, that's a, a good way to frame the question, I think, because um, when you put in the element of time, you see the difference between what uh, those two options that you present, right? So apparently among the Persian peers, whatever they learn that they call virtue, um, something like self-control or moderation, they're going to learn it over at least, uh, you know, 16 years of training, maybe 25 years of training, whatever this long education described in book one, whatever time that takes. Now I take it that they, they have a matter of days. So whatever this thing is that the peers are being um, encouraged to um, cause in the rest of the Persian army, right, who are about to be given unfamiliar weapons, presumably it's, it's not the sort of thing that's going to take 16 years to achieve. It's the sort of thing that's going to take 16 days to achieve, right? right? Yeah, and I think what you, um, the way you frame it is quite nice because what we have here is um, uh, there's this education that takes place in days as opposed to years. And if you read the title in a different way, The Education of Cyrus, what happens now in the rest of the book is that Cyrus is educating his men. He's re-educating. So on the one hand, you think the book is about the education that Cyrus receives. But here we begin to see, especially with respect to the question of virtue, the education is, is perhaps more about the education Cyrus provides, that now he's got to integrate um, people who um, ha have no... Um, I mean, this comes, they have no sense of what it means to really sacrifice. Um, it's just not on their radar. He's got to integrate them into the, into an army. And so he's got a couple of different difficulties with respect to the education he's provided. On the one hand, he said, um, uh, peers, these uh, commoners don't have your education. And so they're not as virtuous as you are, which presumably means they don't know about, um, giving your all for the whole, like, you know, one for all or something like that. They haven't been educated there. Um, but on the other hand, he's also said at the same time, um, the man who is the most virtuous is the man who should get the most rewards. And so there's this um, selfishness that's inherent in the education that he's providing. If you're great, you get all the rewards. Yet he seems to be depending on the unselfishness of the peers to say, hey, let these guys in. Don't they deserve good things you got? I mean, you know what? You know, so there's this great tension in the reading that comes to a head at the end because he goes to Syaxaris and he says, I need money. And he just says that. <laughs> he just says, I don't have any money. Um, and here's why I need money in a way. I've promised these people I'll reward them and I don't have the rewards. And so you can already see that he's... The old Persia, you were virtuous because um, you didn't expect a reward. And so the difficulty Cyrus faces wasn't present in their education. They were virtuous for its own sake, for the sake of Persia. But because of this re-education that he's inculcating, he's now got to go and get the rewards. And so we have in this book a defensive campaign. After all, the Assyrians are attacking us. Let's go be defensive, which has turned into an offensive campaign because he needs rewards and will eventually require taking over the entire world. So, so, so you can see uh, just pregnant in this book, um, the tension in the education um, that he's providing. Um, it's really difficult to manage. 
I, I think that's very interesting in that I'm wondering as we're kind of going through this, like I've got most of this chapter highlighted with little notes to myself that basically recognize most of Cyrus's points as being part of my training as a Marine. Uh, there's a line at 21 where he says, first, first he obtained servants from Cyaxerxes and ordered them to furnish each of the soldiers with a sufficient quantity of all they needed ready prepared. Having made this provision, he left them nothing else than to practice what pertains to war. For he thought he had learned that they became best who, being freed from minding many matters, turned to one work. And what I have just written next to that is support versus infantry. Because in the Marine Corps, you're either infantry or you're support. Right. And it's a it's a constant little tease that the infantry guys, you know, do to us support guys. Uh, and it's but it's also true. And it's also true even within the infantry that the more time you have to practice that and the less time you're d dedicating to whatever other kind of BS that is thrown at you. Uh, the more combat capable you're going to be. And so this question pertains to a lot of these kind of things that Cyrus lays out in this chapter, but I'm wondering what your, you guys' impression are. Is this, is the stuff that Cyrus lays out in this book where he's kind of educating his troops, do we think that some of this is from his training in Persia uh, or are these new discoveries that he's come up with? Well, let me let me take one piece of it, um, which is this question of whether um, close infantry combat is a matter of expertise or not. Um, now, uh, the, the reason I pick on this one, there might be other good ones, but this particular piece of it is that it looks like um, whatever Cyrus learned about close infantry combat, he learned it in Persia, right? The Medes don't do close infantry combat. They're a cavalry people, right? And it looks to me like the Persian education is that close infantry combat relies on the possession of the virtue of self-control or moderation or continence or something, because you don't want to um, flee and expose the guy next to you, right? You want to hold together. So you got to be really tough and good at controlling yourself. And yet Cyrus is going to say, don't, don't worry about this. Uh, you guys, you commoners who have had no uh, extensive education, you were artillery. <laughs> I don't know if that's support in the Marines or not, but still you guys support, yeah. still support. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You guys were, were uh, peon artillery types. You're going to be on the front line now. And don't worry. You'll be just fine. Uh, is that something he knows or is that something is, that is a lie and he doesn't really know? What, what's our view of that one? Yeah, I mean, it seems to be a lie. I mean, you know, there are, I can I can think of, of, of places in the um, future in the book where what and he's already doing it. So it's really not um, a surprise. He will rely on the virtue broadly understood of the peers to win battles, even though he is corrupting the very virtue that he is relying on to win. And so one of the things that will happen, for example, is um, Cyrus will rely on these commoners, as you point out, who don't have the education and moderation that you um, mentioned. He will soon, as in he's going to Armenia now, rely on mercenaries who also don't have, in other words, foreigners, who also don't have the education. And what happens, just to confirm the point that both of you are making, is that they run and, and battle, and the Persians don't. Um, and so, you know, I think you're right that there's, um, that Cyrus is, um, 
his, you know, making, uh, writing checks that he can't necessarily cash tactically. On the other hand, I would say in response to your question, uh, Brian, that there is a tactical genius present here. He, the way he has them do the games um, while they're um, resting, uh, the way, there's this wonderful scene where they take up clods of dirt. Uh, he splits them into two teams and they take up clods of dirt. And then the other team has, so one team has the clods of dirt and the other team has the sticks and the shields. And they run at each other. And the people who are throwing the dirt clods are supposed to kind of emulate distance fighting. And then the people with the swords and the shields run in and beat them. You know, And that's to train for the precisely the type of battle. Um, that they're uh, going to get into. And then, of course, there are these games that he hosts. What, what I see in this chapter, in a way, it just occurred to me yesterday, is there's a tactical brilliance on Cyrus's part that emulates the Socratic. Um, you see this in, in Xenophon's memorabilia and also in Plato, where a promising young statesman will come to Socrates and claim that a sophist somewhere is teaching tactics and that he's mastered the tactics. And what Socrates shows the young man um, who is learning with this uh, revered general who's mastered tactics is that the young man knows nothing about virtue. And what we see in this chapter is that Cyrus has mastered in a way tactical training, but that he knows very, he's very confused about what he's doing to virtue. And so um, this occurs to me as something that, that's present here. Yeah, I love the fight with the clods and the sticks, right? <laughs> because it's a way of teaching that you've got to close. If, if you're going to fight hand-to-hand -hand and you have no artillery, you've got to close as fast as possible if you want That's the pain, right. pain to stop. But notice what it does, how it shifts the ground of the, um, uh, the fighting effectiveness of the soldiers. It used to be endurance of pain because you yeah. hold together. Right, you keep formation regardless of what the other guy's trying to do to you. Now it's precisely not endurance of pain, but trying to end pain as quickly as possible. Right, so either they're going to run forward and break formation and just trample the artillery guys, right, crush them, or they're going to run backwards, but they're not going to hold out. Right, so right. he's shifted the ground, and I think he's he's gambling that uh, by shifting this ground, he's going to unleash a kind of energy in the commoners that was suppressed and not made use of before, right? And whether it's uh, ultimately to his advantage or to his peril is something that we're gonna have to follow out. Yeah. Um, there's another uh, case where he shifts the ground and it's the one about shame. Um, so it used to be that shame among the peers was whenever somebody spat or urinated or gave any sign of needing or um, excreting anything in public. Now it looks like everybody does everything together, right? But it's not clear that the thing you're supposed to be ashamed of is this um, you know, lack of continence. Now you're ashamed of what? Not uh, being sufficiently excellent or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah, and it's, it, you know, it comes back to this idea of, of selfishness and selflessness, right? I think that's a key part that you know, Shiloh, you kind of unlocked for us that comes throughout this as well. Because you know, 22, and Cyrus is just kind of pontificating about stuff. Um, and he says, in addition, uh, in addition to these things, reflecting that human beings are much more willing to practice those things in which there are rivalries, he announced contests to them and whatever he knew to be good for soldiers to practice. Now we yeah. see contests all the time in Homer. Uh, in the Iliad, but I don't remember ever talking about like the why necessarily in terms of um, 
an end state that is they're going to be better warriors. You know, there was a, we're going to find out who the best warrior is, but not that this is going to make everybody better. And so I feel like that is kind of another discovery maybe that Cyrus makes where he's like, not only is this going to allow us to figure out who's good. And, you know, it's like the next page where he finds the platoon commander that, you know, he's going to have over for dinner, like two nights in a row because of how good he is. But we're also going to improve everybody because they're going to see that that platoon commander gets invited to dinner with Cyrus. And so they're going to up their game. And that's exactly what happens with the next platoon commander and how, you know, because it's and it's also built. And this is just, you know, Marine Corps stuff, but it's built around small unit tactics and initiative in small unit tactics. And that's, you know, when we learn stuff in the Marine Corps, it starts with a fire team. It starts with four dudes. And they're basically like this applies to division level as well. You know, you can have four dudes. (laughs) <laughs> or you can have 5,000 dudes. It doesn't really change, you know, what the basics are that we're trying to teach. And it is both a selflessness and a selfishness, I think, that, you know, Cyrus may be, that, and that might be his key discovery here. Yeah. Um, and why he's even bringing the commoners in the fold. Because another interesting thought experiment is, you know, how much harder are you going to work if you're a peer when you're fighting next to a commoner? you know, cause you don't want them to show you up. Sure. If, if, if you're a peer and you're getting scared and you've got a commoner that just came out, got his, you know, got his kit on and has a couple days of training and how to be an infantry guy. And you've notionally been doing this for the last 25 years or so. Like you're not going to leave, you know, yeah. because you know, Joe, Joe Schmuckatelli, uh, who's been, you know, in the army for 10 days is, is standing his ground or attacking the enemy. Yeah, I think you see exactly that, um, exactly what you say in the speech of Chrysanthus, who will, who will go on to be a, a major character in the book. But this is when uh, Cyrus says, well, we should take a vote <laughs> about whether the commoner should be rewarded equally. Should we spread the rewards equally or should the best man get the best thing? And the, there's a commoner who speaks named Feralis and there's a, a peer who speaks named Chrysanthus. And Chrysanthus says, I am the weakest among us. I mean, I know that I have very weak arms and I'm not very fast and I'm not very athletic. And even I say the best man should get the best rewards. And I think Cyrus sees that this is how this is going to go for for precisely the reasons that you say. These peers aren't going to be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. The best, I mean, we should just get what we're entitled to. We don't want to compete with anybody. That's not how they've been raised. So Chrysanthus is like, even though I'm the weakest, even though I'm the slowest, I know that this way will be best on the whole for us. And so, you know, Cyrus, I think, I suspect, sees this. So he's not wholly psychologically um, ignorant or innocent. He does have some capacity, and in fact, an extraordinary capacity to manipulate men. But my sense is that he's not aware also of the tensions that he's fostering as he fosters them. As we pointed out, his reliance on selflessness on the one hand and selfishness on the other and how to reconcile those two things. Um, So, and I would also just say when you were talking, both of you, it, it, it reminded me, his father told him to do this. His father said, hold contests. Uh, uh, remember last time when his father gives him the big speech, he said, hold yeah. the contests. So he's doing what his father said. His father also said, by the way, um, you have to treat your enemies like animals. And when he, today, at the end, when he goes after the Armenian, he tells Chrysanthus, by the way, who's the one he sends, uh, 
to go ahead in a kind of special forces group that's going to be cloaked as robbers to go spy on the Armenians, he says, um, scare them into the mountains like they were animals. Uh, and then we'll trap them in the mountains. And then we can, if he, if he retreats to the mountains, we can take him, just like we would an animal scared into a corner. So you can see Cyrus throughout this chapter doing what his father told him to with respect to tactics. And just a little aside about Chrysantus's role there, uh, when Cyrus chooses him, he adjures Chrysantus. He says, uh, by the way, don't uh, run as fast as you're used to. Don't go into the fields like you're used to. So this guy who says, oh yeah, I, I, you know, I'm, the, I'm the worst soldier. I'm the slowest one. And so I even I defend the principle that you ought to get a reward based on your merit. He is not as slow and as weak <laughs> a soldier as he says, yeah. right? And it does lead you to suspect that, uh, again, Cyrus is um, using some kind of uh, psychological tactics to encourage his army to take a certain uh, course with regard to how the rewards should be distributed. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of in terms of what he learns from his father, though, it seems interesting to me that you know I think you're absolutely right, Shiloh, with the idea of you know pen them like animals, you know trap them like animals. But then he has you know at the very end of book two, he has this very weird um, twist on that, where he says uh, he told his troops to be unjust to no one. And if anyone should chance upon an Armenian to bid him be cheerful and say that whoever wanted to open a market might do so wherever they might be, whether he wished to sell food or drink, mm -hmm. right? And so there's this also thing of like, hey, treat these people like normal people and don't mess with them yeah. because we're not, this is not a attrition war of conquest where, you know, we just want to kill as many of the enemy as possible. Um, we actually want the Armenians to join this fight right. and to give us tribute. So the last right. thing we want to do is, you know, have the people of Armenia not be supportive of, you know, joining this fight. And I think that's another example of, you know, a, a military aphorism, which is, you know, doctrine is there for the guidance of the commander, but it's not, you know, you will do this. Let's open the book, you know, let's open MCDP one war fighting and, you know, just see what it says and do that. It's just there for the guidance of the commander. And so Cyrus feels very comfortable because I think he knows man in riffing on that based on whatever the circumstances are. Yeah. Yeah. That's quite nice. He does. You're absolutely right that he wants to be nice to them because he wants to use them. And so he, yeah, that's very good. Yeah, in fact, it, I could give a kind of overarching um, uh, statement that I think it only distorts things a little bit, which is that um, this Persian, this thing I'm calling the Persian Revolution, this thing that's happening now is really the transition between a traditional society based on virtue that is not expansionist and uh, some kind of society here just um, uh, indicated by the army or embodied in the army in which selfishness has been liberated and therefore there must be a growth economy and therefore in principle there must be expansion and empire yeah, yeah. right so it's moving from an ancient republic to us if i can right. put it that way right <laughs> and in seeing why cyrus does what he does and what the benefits and the costs might be we're really seeing what we have done and what the benefits and costs to us might be uh, even though it's not quite as easy to point to the Cyrus at the head of, of our system. That's right. So you're saying essentially that, that a polity 
which takes self-interest as a central principle, the way, say, Lockean liberalism does, that we can all pursue our own ends and do what we can based on the virtues and talents that we either develop or have naturally been given. Or in Cyrus's case, the, he's saying something similar in a way, insofar as he's saying whatever virtues you have should be rewarded based uh, on um, your performance. These both require expansion um, and uh, sometimes the way I, I put it to the students is that they, you have to feed the beast. Like if you promise the rewards, you got to shovel money into that train to keep it going forward. You got to go get jewels and money, like and coal, shovel that coal in there, man. So he has now got himself in a situation where I very much like the way you put it. What was fundamentally a kind of Spartan, you know, Xenophon echoes Sparta in the free square defensive nation is now becoming an on offensive powerhouse. And so today we see this transition between uh, Cyrus's father sending him out on a defensive mission and it has immediately turned into an offensive war because you have to feed the beast because the change of virtue. That's what you're, that's very nice. Yeah. Uh, I'm enjoying the, the animal imagery and themes that we're exploring because <laughs> it leads to another question that I have. And this is in chapter three, uh, line eight, and this is Feralus's speech. Um, and he says, uh, this is round line eight. Cyrus and all P Persians present. Uh, you, this is just a funny aside for uh, our listeners. If you have Apple AirPods and you say uh, C-Y-R-U-S, <laughs> your computer will think you're saying S-I-R-E and will come up every time you say that name. <laughs> so that's been super fun hearing that voice in my earphones. We've, going, we've figured like? out who our new leader is, um, right? So <laughs> C-Y-R-U-S and all the Persians present. I hold that we all are now setting out an equal footing in a contest of virtue. For I see that we all exercise our bodies in a similar regimen, that we are all deemed deserving of like society, and that all the same prizes are set before us all, for to obey the rulers is required of all in common. And I see that whoever is evident doing so without exercise obtains honor from Cyrus. Being stout against the enemy is not something that is fitting for one, but not another. But this too has been judged to be most noble of all. Now this is an interesting part here with animals. Now the mode of battle that has been shown to us is one that I see all human beings understand by nature, just as also the various other animals each know a certain mode of battle that they learn not from another, but from nature. For example, the ox strikes with the horn, the horse with the hoof, the dog with his mouth, the boar with his tusk. They all also understand how to defend against what they most need to, even though they have never gone to any teacher of these things. So... I kind of wonder um, what you guys think of that statement in terms of the natural inclination, inclination of attack and defense. And also it's interesting because Fairless right after talks about the sword. So he gives all these examples of the horn with his tusk, the dog with his mouth, but then as human beings, you know, we have a tool that we use for either attack and defense. So I just wondered what you guys thoughts are on, you know, kind of human nature and learning from human nature and the attack and the defense. So this is a great question in part because, uh, you know, just in the context of the book as a whole, we've been encouraged to think of the problem of ruling other human beings in comparison with the problem of human beings ruling animals and the extent to which you could um, uh, solve the problem of ruling if it was possible to create between human beings the relations that exist between human beings and animals. Um, and there are other signs that Cyrus is treating not just uh, his enemies, 
as animals, uh, like his father um, encouraged him to do, as Shiloh reminded us, but also his own troops as animals. He makes, there's some remark that Xenophon makes about um, comradeship and small group cohesion, that Cyrus had noticed that animals that feed together have a terrible yearning for one another when they're separated, and he's trying to encourage that same uh, feeling uh, in his troops, right? So he is, to some extent, thinking of them as animals with all the, uh, the difficulties that that entails. Now, on this point, his buddy, apparently there's some personal connection between Pharaulus and, and Cyrus. Uh, there was in the past. Uh, his buddy is making the argument that it's natural uh, to defend yourself by putting up your hands, and it's natural to attack somebody with a sword. Um, just like a, a, an animal would use a tusk or a, a tooth. Um, I think I buy the first part. I think I don't buy the second part. Um, and I wonder, for example, don't we know that there's a, a long tradition of the military having difficulty getting people to shoot other people? And you really have to train that into them. And I'm not sure it's easier to bayonet another human being. Uh, so it looks to me like he starts with a, a plausible argument. Uh, of course you put up your hands so as not to be hit. And he flips it in a way that is unconvincing. Do, does that sound good to you guys? Yeah. Yeah, that sounds nice to me. I, I find this section very difficult to, to understand its significance. Um, that seems good to me. The, the only other thing I can think of related to this is um, whether Xenophon's trying to say something about the naturalness of virtue. In other words, there's an argument <clears throat> that um, Chrysanthus uh, because Chrysanthus, who's the peer, speaks first. Feralis, who's the commoner, speaks second. But the, there's a difference between them, and the difference is Chrysanthus is, is um, reputed at least to be a weak and slow man, whereas Feralis is reputed to have be excellent in body and soul, in fact, but but in body in particular. And so you get, and I can't, I haven't thought this through, and I can't puzzle it through for myself. But you get a man who, uh, in Chrysanthus who is naturally very weak, but who's been educated in virtue by way of convention. And then you get in Feralis a man who is naturally very strong and who has not been educated in virtue by way of convention, and therefore who makes the case that virtue is natural. Why can't the strongest of us go and show how excellent we are and we should get the rewards based on our natural you know, capacities to fight, and it's natural to all men. Whereas the, the Persians seem to think that virtue is much more than nature. It requires a 20-year education uh, convention. And so I'm, I'm wondering whether Cyrus is moving the content of virtue more in the direction of nature than of convention. As he slowly moves away from the Persian education, he necessarily, for all the reasons we've said uh, before about feeding the animals or feeding the beast in the war machine, he's also got to move in the direction of the kind of, I don't know how else to put it, the naturalness of virtue. The education is in a way not required for excellence. And I, I think that Xenophon and Socrates would probably not say that. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. not, you know and, and so I, I wonder whether we're not starting to see um, something that Zen, um, how do I say this, the education of Xenophon that Xenophon is trying to provide an education outside of or different from the education of Cyrus. Um, another thing um, that would be related to this is you read a quote a moment ago, Brian, um, where uh, it, it came in the context of the determination that if we move in the direction of giving people rewards based on 
um, their virtue, what this will ensure is that what is most fitting for each is given to each. And I would encourage people to recall what we talked about last time when Cyrus um, um, uh, told his mother that his initial inclination with justice was to do for each what's fitting, um, that the big boy should get the big coat, and the little boy the little coat. What he's done here is precisely that. He said, virtue won't be what is legally equal for all, it will be what is fitting for each. And so that is a um, manifestation of his grandfather's way of, of running the show. I am the wise man. And even um, Chrysanthus or Feralis, one of the two says, I agree that virtue should be rewarded based on excellence and performance and Cyrus should be judge. And so you have now this man who is the judge of the fitting. And so he's taken upon himself the entire moral cosmos. And he's now become a god in a way because he's the one who says you are the most virtuous and you get the rewards. And this is very telling because there's also a speech in the reading today where he says people who are vile, who try to get more than what they deserve, they should be expunged from the army. They should be ejected from the army. And so he has this um, confusion in a way, or how do I say, these immoderate hopes about justice and virtue, where he seems to be frustrated in a way I think he is, that the, that the most excellent don't get what's best for them every time. He promises his men in the last reading and in this reading, they should, and it's wrong that you don't. And so he's got this moral indignation, um, but at the same time that he has this um, moral indignation, he doesn't see that he now takes upon himself all of the authority to right the wrongs of the moral cosmos. And that, that's, that itself is maybe not the most prudent way to go about things. And so he's so frustrated by injustice that rather than say injustice is a part of life, it just happens and we have to digest it moderately. It's going to be there. He says, I'm going to correct all injustices by making what's fitting for each, um, the thing that each gets and anyone who is vile will be expunged. That's a, not a moderate hope like that. You can't that's a utopia. You can't have a world where all the unjust are expunged and all the just get what they want. And so I point this out. Yeah, that's, oh. a, that's a super pregnant comment. And I just want to draw out a, a couple implications. The first is that um, thinking to the comparison between what Cyrus is putting into place in our society, we see now that it's not just enough to have a growth economy where there's always more stuff, but you also have to make it so... Um, People who uh, don't deserve to die, don't die, right? I mean, that's the bottom line. If you want to make sure that everybody gets what they deserve, you got to make sure, especially that the heroic people on the battlefield don't die. How are you going to do that? That's not just a resources <laughs> issue, yeah. right? Especially if yeah. your chief occupation is conquering other places. And so we get something like the intimation of the, the modern scientific project to pursue immortality there. Yeah. Um, also, uh, what's Cyrus's place in this calculation of what everybody gets and what is fitting, right? When Pharaulus makes the claim that Cyrus should judge, it's because Cyrus has no envy, right? But what does that mean? Does that mean that Cyrus doesn't want all the stuff that everybody else is getting in this distribution? Well, then what does he want? What's he getting out of this? So that's, that's a question. And then maybe just one more thing, which is that um, to expand your um, analysis of Feraulus, it's not, I think, just 
that um, Cyrus is moving towards a more natural understanding of what virtue is. It wouldn't surprise me if Pharrell is this distinguishing characteristic, which is depicted in this comical fashion that whenever, when he was a kid, whenever he saw a sword, he grabbed it and would stab stuff, right? Is, I, I suspect his distinguishing characteristic is his anger. This guy is angry because he has a beautiful body. He obviously deserves lots of things, but under the traditional Persian regime, he was a, a farm laborer. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I'm not sure that basing your, um, the energy of your army on individual anger is a very prudent way to go. Yeah. It and makes that, for that, great Greek epics, though. <laughs> that, that, that would be another example of Cyrus trying to right the wrongs of nature. In other words, he knows this Feralis, and he knows that he's excellent. And it's just a shame he's a commoner. And so Cyrus says to him, um, uh, I know you're morally indignant. I am too. You should be given better things. Let me make that happen for you. Let me make it such that you get what's fitting. And so let me make it such that the big coat fits the big boy and the little coat fits the little boy. And so, you know, what the implications of that are in the long term for politics um, or for leadership, I think we have to really think that through. What's, what's occurring to me, and I'd love, love for you guys to tell me I'm wrong, is it seems like what Cyrus is having an ability to do is understanding that he can carve out kind of a system boundary of moral philosophy. It goes back to what Jeff was saying about questioning the nature of bayoneting somebody else, right? And, this also, and Jeff, we've been doing this long enough that I know and he knows that that was just teeing me up to mention On Killing by Dave Grossman, <laughs> which, which I have like a timer set, like every eight episodes mention On Killing by Dave Grossman. The check um, is in the mail. Yeah. It's in the mail. <laughs> uh, which lays out a very compelling case that it is incredibly unnatural for you know human beings to kill each other and we actually don't see that very often in the animal world the my favorite example is that rattlesnakes wrestle you know that in order to uh, figure out who is dominant you have rattlesnakes that wrestle each other they don't try to bite each other right it's only really man that has figured out how to kind of hack moral philosophy or draw a system boundary around it that says okay in the big picture we're not supposed to kill each other. But if we draw this little circle around us as Persians or us as allies and enemies uh, and separate those system boundaries, then it's okay. And then how do we reinforce that okayness? Well, we set up hierarchies. Um, we set up tangible hierarchies so we know who's in charge. We practice this again and again and again and again in a you know competitive uh, way. Uh, I would also say that sports is an, is an outgrowth of this. All sports is an outgrowth of this. And we reward people that do it well. Uh, we reward them for, uh, and in the military, it's, you know, we give them ribbons and promotions. Like everybody gets paid the same, but you, you know, get promoted faster. Uh, you move up the hierarchy, you have more power and you get colorful stuff on your chest. And so we figured out a hack around how to get people to kill each other more effect effectively or defeat people more effectively by drawing the system boundary around a larger moral philosophy and saying, well, it's okay and even encouraged to kill people as long as you're doing it within this kind of boundary we've set out. And it's also okay for you to be, we've also figured out kind of a system in that system boundary where you can be selfless 
like he talks about in you know chapter three, um, chapter three, line three, you thus must know that human beings who are partners in war swiftly accomplish many noble things when each of them has in himself this thought, unless each is himself zealous, nothing that must occur will occur. That, that seems like a wonderful, very short aphorism saying, um, it reminds me of the fifth law of the Navy, which I had to memorize when I was like 17 years old at Plebe Summer, which is on the strength of one link with the cable dependeth the might of the chain. Uh, who knows when thou mayest be tested, so live that thou bearest the strain. I can't believe I still remember that whole thing. Um, <laughs> but it also allows for overzealousness, right? It kind of says, well, right, you know, re make sure you're taking care of the guy next to you. And, you know, if you want to do a little extra, that's okay too, because we're going to reward the people that are doing extra. So it seems like, again, he's created this or discovered this moral philosophy that will get done what he wants to get done, which is to conquer others and made it virtuous. But it, it, I think if we looked at it from a macro sense, we would say this is not virtuous. But in, in this system boundary, within this system boundary that he's kind of set up and discovered how to manipulate, like he can call it virtue. Yeah. What, I mean, tell me I'm wrong on that though, because it's probably... No, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. You sound almost 100% right to me. I, I would like to think though, that if a Marine recruiter was sitting in his office and a kid came in and, and he said, son, why, why do you want to be a Marine? And the kid said, uh, sir, I'm just so angry. I want to kill someone. Uh, the Marine recruiter would say, I don't think you're for us. Right. But I suspect I that Cyrus has said the quota system is pretty, <laughs> pretty brutal. So. But I, I think Cyrus is saying, you're my guy. You're exactly my guy. Mm -hmm. Right. And that uh, is, is a, is a dangerous move. I think you're pointing at the right difficulty. Yeah. yeah and I think um, uh, one thing we haven't brought up um, uh, in detail yet, but which bears on what you've said that, that both of you is um, there's this scene in chapter two where um, the, the peers are all gathered around having a kind of like a guy's night or something. And they start to joke about the incompetence of the, um, of the commoners. <laughs> and uh, um, there's a lot of laughter, but there's one man who says, this is not a laughing matter. And he's a very serious man. And um, one of the things that occurs to me, uh, because you guys just concluded that, well, maybe this is okay for take, you know, Cyrus's whole um, moral revolution, make seating himself at the head of the moral table uh, is okay for this project, but on the long, in the long term, it's not sustainable. Um, this, this, as they gather around and they laugh at the incompetence of the commoners, this is evidence that there's a real problem here. Like, and when this guy uh, who says to Cyrus and these other men, you shouldn't be laughing. This is really serious. And then they rib him and they say, ah, oh, you're just so serious all the time. Come on, laugh. And they finally get a smile out of him. Um, interestingly, when they get a smile out of him, Cyrus says, oh, you got a smile out of him. Don't corrupt him. You're corrupting him. When what's <laughs> happened is that Cyrus has corrupted the entire army and, right. and, and now they're laughing about it. And so there's this great xenophantic delicacy and irony um, Xenophon is known to write, if you read his symposium, it's a book about uh, serious men at play, uh, he says. This is a similar situation where the laughter, um, as we all know, uh, laughter betrays, uh, we laugh at it because it's oftentimes so awful that it, 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 it tears are not the appropriate response from the heights, um, you know, uh, uh, 
even tragedy looks like comedy. You know, this is a Nietzsche quote. So um, this is what's happening here. And, and it just totally blows by Cyrus, just blows by him. And I think this is a very quiet, xenophontic critique of Cyrus. And I wanted to ask you all this question in, in a self-interested way. Um, <laughs> so Cyrus gives this whole speech um, uh, in, in this chapter with, this, with the laughter and such about how the virtuous should be rewarded and the vile should be expunged. But in a characteristically xenophontic way, at the end of the chapter, there's this crazy odd two paragraphs where they turn to this captain who has an ugly uh, boyfriend and they say to him, um, why, do you, why do you have this ugly boyfriend? He's said to be surpassingly ugly in face. And then they, they're ribbing this guy and they're like, do you like ugly guys and all this kind of thing? And then they ask, do you kiss him? Does he, you know, do you, do, does he ever kiss you? Um, does the captain ever kiss the ugly boy, his ugly boyfriend? And then the ugly boyfriend happens to be present and he speaks up and he says, no, he doesn't. Um, and, you know, it's a, we can talk about this uh, in more detail. Um, but the question I have is, why is this here? In other words, what is Xenophon trying to communicate by having a whole chapter where things are funny? Cyrus goes on a virtuous crusade and said, the, right sh the good should be rewarded, the bad should be expunged. And then at the end, we have this boy who's very ugly, but who works very hard um, in the army. And he's the boyfriend of this captain, but he's very ugly, but he's the hardest worker. And he's made all the, uh, the, the guy says, I, I'm, I like him because he makes all of my soldiers better, but he is really ugly. And then, you know, the kid says, and he, he never kisses me also. What does this mean? What is Xenophon, does, do you guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, this, this was hard for me. I think it's um, obtrusiveness is obvious. What, what it's doing mm -hmm. there is a real puzzle. Um, yeah. And it's right at the end of the chapter. So the very next thing uh, Xenophon says at the beginning of chapter three is, uh, you know, in this in this way, they pass their time in seriousness and play or something like that. So he's screaming at you to differentiate between what the serious and what the playful elements are. Uh, the only thing I have uh, to hand, I guess I got a couple things. First is um, Cyrus himself. It reminds us of the uh, the scene where Cyrus kisses uh, the young man who claims to be his relative when he's leaving media. And so it looks like this is a continuation of a theme of an unresolved uh, thought concerning Cyrus's relation to Eros. So there's that part. And then it also looks kind of allegorical to me, at least, in the sense that um, virtue might be ugly but effective. And uh, it might be possible to be attached to that. And maybe Cyrus is only attached to the virtue that is not ugly or some kind of less effective but more beautiful yeah. um, uh, practice of virtue. So there, there might be a difficulty there as well. And maybe the two ideas go together somehow. I'm not so sure. Well, I think that's actually a good cliffhanger for us to end on. And so, dear, dear listener, if you would like to dig in and let us know what you think about the ugly boyfriend <laughs> and, you know, his, his Greek fashion boyfriend um, and why he's ugly and why this guy likes him so much. You can hit us up on our Facebook page, Combat and Classics. Uh, Shiloh, thanks for coming back. Thank you. Jeff, thank you as always. Yeah, thank you, Brian. Thank you both for a great conversation. We'll be back with uh, book three next week. Uh, so thank you, listeners. I appreciate you tuning in. Bye, guys. <laughs>